0: The pursuit of joy is a universal human endeavor. All of us want a life of happiness and contentment, but the circumstances of life seem to undermine that pursuit at every turn. Philippians is a letter written by a man named Paul from a jail cell in Rome, and though his circumstances are grim, he writes of a joy found not in our where we are, but rather in who we are and who we know. For in Jesus there is always reason to rejoice. Welcome here also. Uh, My name is Matt. I'm very glad to see everyone here. If you're new here with us, a special welcome to you. Um, What we do in the mornings when we gather is uh, we worship and we praise God, and then we come to hear from Him in His Word, and so that's what we're going to do now. Uh, If you have a Bible, it's a great time to take it out. Uh, We have been going through the book of uh, Philippians, and so we find ourselves in Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some uh, on the tables on your way in, any Sunday you come, if you get your Bible or want to grab one, uh, that's, that's a great thing to do. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can take that one home with you. We'd love for you to have a Bible on your way out. Uh, but we are going to find ourselves, yeah, Philippians, uh, back half of the Bible. And uh, this is a letter written by Paul to the Christians in Philippi. Uh, as I was studying this week, uh, there was a, a quote that came to mind that I thought was a helpful tie-in for our, our passage this morning. Now, you have to understand, the reason that this quote is in my, in my brain is because uh, from grades 8 through 10, uh, it was staring down at me from the front of my English classroom. I went to Millard uh, at that time, junior high school, and uh, David Hunting's was my English teacher, great English teacher. Uh, he loved everything about English. Even I think he was English. Um, but he had a quote uh, that was printed out in like a dot matrix printer, and had been up there for years, and the quote was this. It was from Socrates, and it said simply, the unexamined life is not worth living. So, as a grade 8 kid, I had no idea what that meant, except what I remember is uh, Mr. Hunting's would refer to that every now and again when he wanted us to actually think about life. When we were reading, that's what literature tends to be about, and he would say, guys, the unexamined life is not worth living, meaning think about who you are. It was a good reminder. Um, it's also something that we find in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, uh, we see this as a theme that we are pushed to continually, uh, carefully examine our lives, to figure out you know, who we are. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a follower of God? Um, we saw last week that this was part of Paul's message. Uh, if you remember, if you are here in verse 21, he said that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And by that, in part, he was encouraging all those who would read it to to think of life in light of eternity and death, and and to really examine your life and figure out what what are you living for. So I think we'd agree, the Bible I think would agree with Socrates, that the unexamined life, the life that never looks up at the horizon, never looks deep into the heart, never asks the big questions of life, that is a life that in a sense is not worth living, because there's, there's waste there, there's a lack of meaning and purpose. But, but Paul takes us beyond the examining of life into the living of it in our passage today. It's all well and good to consider what life is about, but we don't want to just sit back. We, want, we need to actually live our lives. And so in our passage today, we see that he draws us past the examining, past the considering, into the actual living of life. And what we're going to see is that uh, he calls for us to live a life of investment where we're actually pouring ourselves out, pouring ourselves into the things that matter most to us. So I'm gonna tweak uh, the quote. Instead of the unexamined life is not worth living, I'm gonna suggest that the uninvested life is not worth living. And so as sort of a framework for our text and for our time, that's where we're going. So uh, we're gonna hear now from from the Lord, uh, Philippians 1, starting in verse 27, where Paul continues to speak to the Philippian church, and he says this. Only... Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That's God's word. We're gonna pray for a moment. Uh, Lord, I'm very thankful for your word. I'm thankful, God, that as we gather here, um, Lord, we know that you are speaking. Uh, Lord, we have an opportunity to actually hear from you. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a time of great uh, strengthening and encouragement and instruction, Lord. I pray in spite of my own sin, God, that you would speak. your people, and Lord, that we would come to know you more and ourselves more uh, as we consider your words. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this idea of investment is one that, um, even though you don't see the word in the text, for the Philippians, as as they heard this read, because that's what would happen, someone would stand up and read this letter from beginning to end, um, this idea of investment would have been immediately clear. And that's because in the very first a bit of verse 27, there's actually a reference to citizenship. You don't see it there, but in the Greek, uh, we, we read, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. But they would have heard in the Greek, exercise your citizenship worthily, which is a word we need to use more often, worthily of the gospel of Christ. Meaning, you are actually citizens of the gospel, citizens of the kingdom of God. And so I am encouraging you, reminding you to live a worthy life in light of that fact. So you're citizens of the gospel now live that way. For the Philippians, this would have been a very strong uh, appeal because for them to be a citizen was a huge deal. Um, They were a Roman colony. So this was a Roman town. And when Rome decided to make Philippi a colony, they gifted everyone with citizenship, which was a huge gift. Because back in the ancient world, uh, to be a Roman citizen meant that you were a somebody. No one really cared for each other the way that we care now. By that I mean, there were no governmental or social systems back then. No social safety net for care, to care for those who were in need. Um, you might, you have a family, hopefully a village that would care for you. But if, for example, you were uh, in a business deal and you were defrauded, um, you would have very little recourse. There, there was no, no one there to care about that, to go and talk to. Um, if someone had more power than you, more status than you, then you were kind of out of luck, unless you were a Roman citizen. If you were a Roman citizen, then all of a sudden you had legal status. You, you could appeal to their whole legal system. You had protection and, and someone to appeal to. We see, in fact, when Paul gets into trouble, uh, he appeals to the fact that he is a Roman citizen, so to be a Roman citizen was a big deal. Everyone who uh, wore the title of Roman citizen, they were very, very proud to be citizens. And they knew that that meant not just certain rights, but if uh, you remember, uh, one of my boys is doing social six right now. So with, with citizenship, there's rights and there's responsibility. That was a test last week. We studied for that. So <laughs> rights and responsibilities. Uh, there are obligations and responsibilities that come with being a citizen, And for the Romans, they gladly accepted them. They were happy to serve the empire because they knew what it meant to be a citizen, all the things, all the benefits that they got. So military service was something that was just part of being a citizen. You were a young man and you you served in the military. That was a source of pride. They didn't see that as as an onerous burden. They were like, yeah, I'm happy to serve and defend the empire because of all that I get from it. Also, uh, religious devotion that was part of what it meant to be a Roman citizen. In fact, in Philippi, there were many, many monuments and temples to all the Roman gods. And of course, they worshipped Caesar as God. That was part of what it meant to be a citizen, that you would, you would devote yourself. You would worship the things that the empire worshipped because you wanted to invest fully. So really what we see is a, a high level of investment for those who are Roman citizens. And so when the Philippians heard, exercise your citizenship worthily," they would have said, oh yeah, I, I get that. I don't think that's exactly true for us. I think for us, the idea of citizenship doesn't carry with it the same level of investment. Like, for example, do you ever find it strange how when, uh, if you're reading the New Testament, and um, the apostles go into a town like Paul, and they start preaching the gospel, which is probably very different than what the Romans there would worship, and someone gets upset, it's never just a disagreement between one or two people. The whole town comes out, to have an argument or a riot, right? Very often everyone's picking up stones. Everyone's upset. In fact, we see this is what happened when Paul went to plant the church in Philippi. Uh, here's Acts 16. Um, they got in trouble. People don't like what they're saying. And it says, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And just based on that accusation, they beat them, they put them in jail. And I'm just saying, I don't, I don't think we feel that way about Canada, do we? Like if someone came to my door, like my neighbor, and said, hey Matt, there's a guy down the road, he's talking bad about Canada. Get your hockey stick, we're going to go beat him up. <laughs> I would say, I, is he doing other stuff bad? Like what, what is he, I'm not sure that I really feel a compulsion to do that. But for them, this was an affront. I mean, for us, we don't have that level of investment. To be honest, like even when it's Canada Day, and there's a big celebration at Rocky Point, and there's stuff for the kids, and there's a bandstand, there's fireworks. Sometimes I have a conversation with Don that's like this. I don't know, it's gonna be really crowded. Like it's, do we really wanna, it's so hot. Do we wanna get all the kids in the van to go down there? I mean, that's, I'm, I'm wrestling with just going to celebrate our nation with cotton candy. So that, I think, is a little more akin to where we are in terms of citizenship. Level of investment is generally fairly low. So when they hear, the Philippians hear, uh, be good citizens, for them, it's, it's not about a level of investment. They're already up here, but the reminder is, hey, remember, your allegiance is not to Caesar. It's to Jesus. You are citizens of, of heaven. In fact, that's what we see. Here's Philippians 3.20. Uh, Paul says a little bit later on in the letter, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying to them, remember, be fully invested in the kingdom of God. For us, I think we need to hear that as well. I do think that we have um, certain areas of life where we have full investment, but they are usually to do with ourselves. In fact, I think there's probably an inverse relationship. The more that we've become invested in ourselves, I think we tend to invest less in other things of life. And so it's a problem for our country and for our church because what we need to hear Paul saying is it's good to have that level of investment, It's good to be fully devoted, not not to Caesar, not to the earthly king, but to Christ. And so for us, it's a shift in allegiance, but probably from ourselves to Jesus, and also probably a a challenge for us to recapture what it means to be a citizen, what it means to truly invest. It might have been easier for the Romans, for the people in Philippi, because for them, They could look around and see what happens when you don't, when you're not a citizen. They saw the people who were down and out, who were taken advantage of, who had no recourse, had no protection. They could see that and then be thankful for the protection they had in the empire, even if it was a a pagan empire, not not worshiping God, but still the practical benefits were there. For us, I think we miss it. But if we look carefully, we can see, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you, you should know the benefits that come from the protection, from the inclusion in the gospel. You should be able to look around you and see the many people who are, who are looking for, for protection, looking for purpose, looking for hope, and yet not finding it ultimately. And we have lots to be grateful for then because we can be reminded as we look into the word, as we're in conversation with others who know and love Jesus, say, man, we have a greater citizenship and so an even greater reason to invest so, if that's true, if that's stirring in our hearts, and we see, yeah, I, I get it. I think that, that makes sense, that there should be a real sense in which I'm invested in the things of God. What does that look like? Well, for the rest of the passage, we have a two ways, two things that Paul points to in terms of what a life of investment looks like. So the first is it's a life of conviction and action, and the second is it's a life of suffering. So we'll take the first Uh, first. I know it's kind of a tandem there, but those two things, conviction and action, uh, they go together. So we get two for one. Uh, Verse 27 is where we see these principles, these ideas. Uh, Paul says, so whether I come, like back to Philippi, and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, that's the conviction, with one mind striving side by side for faith in the gospel, that's the action. And so what we see here is that to be a a worthy citizen of the kingdom of heaven, we need both conviction and action, which is no different than anything within or without the church. Whenever you truly invest in something, you need to come to a point of belief. You need to come to a point where you really say, oh, this is, um, I'm sure about this. I'm going to stand firm in this. Uh, Notice though that this is not an individual enterprise. He says there that we are to stand uh, in the Spirit, in one Spirit, and we're to be side by side as we strive for the Gospel. Uh, really, this is talking about church unity. And this is, this is also a challenge for us. Because we sometimes have the idea, that, well, in our day, I think we love the idea of community, don't we? There's community centers, there's community all over the place. But a true community is one that is not just uh, gathered together because of like-mindedness. Or a common interest. Sometimes in the church we have this idea that, that it's really we're here and we're a loving community and we kind of like hanging out. Maybe we like the same songs. Maybe we like the, sort of the, the idea of relationship. But those are not the things that actually bind us together. We need to be asking, you know, what kind of love binds us together as a church? And the answer is that it's the love of Jesus. The sacrificial love of Christ. That means that as we as individuals have come to know the love of Jesus, that he, he died on the cross for our sins because of love, I grab hold of that as an individual and I find that, hey, someone else has grabbed hold of the same thing, that there's a common truth that we both have a conviction about and that is the thing that binds us together. We might also ask, what kind of spirit? We're supposed to be in one spirit. What kind of spirit binds us together? And the answer is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who made us alive in Christ and then continues to fill us and strengthen us. It's the Holy Spirit. As we hold fast to the Holy Spirit, we find other people are doing the same. That's what unites us. It's a common belief about a certain truth. It's not just that we enjoy being together because there's gonna be times where we, we actually don't enjoy being together. There's gonna to be people who really irritate you and you're gonna not wanna be here. I could really irritate you, which would be very awkward because I'm going to be here every Sunday. I get a microphone. You don't. You're going to be like, this sucks. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you do? Well, if there are greater things that hold us together, the truths of Scripture, then we have a common bond, um, even our purpose, our purpose for our own lives. Um, that's something that we can, as Christians, agree on. We saw it last week. Paul says, my purpose is to honor Jesus. And as we say as individuals, yeah, I believe the same thing. Then we have a united purpose and direction for our church. So conviction is essential to living a life of investment and certainly to be part of the church. So what does the action look like? Well, the action is also natural when it comes to investment. Um, I don't really know what investment bankers do, but I'm pretty sure that they look for opportunities to invest wisely, right? So they're looking for somewhere that's going to be profitable. So they have money or someone else's money, and they say, yeah, that place there... I've done my research, I've done my study, I'm convinced, I'm convicted, I believe, pretty sure, that's a good investment. So I'm gonna take my resources and then pour it into that business or whatever and reap the rewards. It's the same thing for us. It would be weird if an investment banker said, yeah, I I believe that's a good bet, but I'm not gonna write a check or transfer any funds. You would say, well, you're not gonna reap any of the rewards then. And for us, it's the same. If we see the profitability of the gospel, if we see that there's really nothing else in this world that is going to bless us in the same way that faith in Christ will in this life and the life to come, then it makes sense that we would then invest fully because we, we want profit for ourselves. It's good and right for us to say, this is gonna be the very best, lead to my greatest joy. God says, yes, because then I receive more glory and honor. So we are to invest. We are to, to do some things. And we wonder, what, so what are we supposed to do? Are we doing it now? Mm, sort of. Sort um, of. What does this look like? Look at the verbs in our text. I'll tell you again. Paul says we are to stand firm in our convictions. We are to strive for the gospel. And what happens when we do this is that it tends to lead to conflict. You'll notice also that he talks to them about not being afraid when they have opponents. He talks about the conflict that he has. And this, this actually makes sense because as we uh, are firm about what we believe, as, as Christians, as the church, and as we strive to share with others what we believe, uh, we, will, we will set ourselves apart in a sense. People will realize, actually, I don't believe the same thing that you do. And, and there will be ripples, there will be conflict. There could actually be, because of what we believe, people that have greater conflict with us. Um, I think we know this to be true. Uh, I came across a story, though, that I... I think helps illustrate this dynamic because there's a tension there. Um, This story was told by a pastor about a bank manager in his church. And um, what happened was the bank manager, he'd been a bank manager manager for a while, um, but there was a new policy or a new strategy from the bank executives. They said, we want to get new clients. We want to hold the clients we have. So what we're going to do, it's not a new strategy, but just new for us, is we want you to wine and dine our clients. We basically want the managers, uh, the leadership team, take them out for nice dinners, take them out to clubs, buy them, you know, wine, dinner. Just show them a great time, and they'll like us, and they'll come to our bank. So the bank manager didn't sit well with him. Um, he didn't think, from a financial, from a business point of view, this was a great idea. But personally, he he wrestled with. the the thought of going and basically getting people drunk, of going and and gluttony and just sort of buying everything and anything they want so that they will uh, find favor with uh, these clients. So he wrestled with it for a while, and then he said, I just don't think that I can do this. So he chose to not comply and to just run the bank the way he had for years. And what happened is that the bank actually continued to prosper. He did, the bank did very, very well, as well or better than some of the other branches that were now doing this new policy. And so, from a business point of view, things were going well. Except that his superiors, it really irked them that he wouldn't go with the flow. Uh, it really irked him that irked them that that he decided to stand in his conviction. They felt judged by it. And so, what they did is they sent him on a two-month leave, and they hired someone else in his position. And then they rehired him so that there wouldn't be any legal repercussions, they put him in another place where they felt like he wouldn't be as much trouble. So you can see how for that bank manager, how frustrated would you be? He didn't do anything wrong. He did what he was supposed to do. The, biz, the, the bank was profitable. He was fulfilling his obligations. But because of his personal convictions, there was pressure. And I think in a room this size, uh, probably some of us, that resonates with us. That, that there's pressure, uh, that there's uh, some sort of trial that we've gone through because we've, we felt led to stand up for our personal convictions. And what we would notice is that r- in reality, there are going to be greater and greater differences between the biblical worldview and the worldview of our culture. And there are going to be increasing moments. In, in the name of tolerance and love, there are going to be increasing words of intolerance and, and a lack of love for those who hold to a Christian worldview. And the challenge for us is that we are called to invest fully. We, we believe, if you're here and you're a Christian, that this, this book is, are the words of God and that it's authoritative in our life, which means that this is gonna lead us into conflict with the world around us because when the Bible says things, we are going to agree with it. When the Bible says that um, human beings are either only men or women, that's something that we are going to agree with. When the Bible says that uh, the only healthy form of human sexuality is to be expressed between a man and a woman in marriage, we are gonna agree with that, and that's gonna bring difficulty. That's gonna bring um, the potential for a feeling of judgment. And so we need to really think about and look to the word of God and say, how is it that we are to stand firm in this way when it's very clear here that the thing that we're to strive in is the gospel, So our message to the outside world is really not primarily to do with any sort of ethics or morality, any sort of sexual identity or sexual ethics. That's not our primary message. The message is one of the gospel. It's one of everyone inside and outside the church broken in our sin. Every one of us on our own needing the forgiveness of God. Every one of us lost apart from the work of Jesus. And so the message that we need for people to have is is God loves you. First and foremost, wherever you are, however you feel, God loves you and he's shown you his love in the person of Jesus. But how do we stand firm in our convictions then? Is there a way that we can still personally, like in our family, in in our dynamics at at home, at, at work, on sports team, we can still live a life of biblical conviction and yet communicate the love of the gospel? I think there is. We see here the dynamic that Paul is laying out. There are times... When we are going to stand firm and we are going to simply say to our boss, to a loved one, to someone somewhere, you know what, I'm sorry, I just, I can't go along with that. Just for me personally, it's a point of conviction. I can't do that. But the question is, how do you have that conversation? If you stand firm with love, there's something about that. If you don't compromise with grace, people notice that. If you, if you don't back down with humility, if you are faithful but without fear, then there's something about that disposition, that, that humility of, of heart where we say, look, man, I love you, God loves you. There's just something that I personally can't do. But first and foremost, I want you to know the love of God. When we, when we interact that way, uh, what we see here in the text is that we're actually proclaiming who God is. Look, uh, look again at verse 28. It'll be up there. This is Paul saying, as you, as you stand firm, not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So as we are able to have a sort of fearless conviction, that actually is a demonstration of our hope. You say, how is, like, how is that actually a sign? Well, because in our uh, confidence, our humble confidence, we demonstrate a hope that won't be dissolved by human pressure. And and for those who are looking for it say there's something about that hope it's different it doesn't yield to pressure it's even a sign of the destruction of those who don't believe because as they oppose us God will in his time oppose all who do not claim the name of Jesus because of their sin and so even in that there is a sign of the coming sorrow and destruction one that we desperately want people to avoid this is a life of investment investment in the gospel we begin with a point of conviction. Do we really believe that Jesus is Lord? Do we really follow Him fully? That leads to action, which will unfortunately lead to conflict, which will entail suffering. And so that's the second thing that marks a life of genuine investment is that there is there is suffering. Now, on the one hand, I don't know that this is a surprise. If there's anything worthwhile to do in life, inside and outside of the church, there's generally some cost involved, isn't there? Like If you're going to start a business, if you're going to have some great idea, you're going to have to give of yourself. So the suffering itself is not a surprise. But the surprise is from the text that the suffering is spoken of in terms of it being a gift, a gift from God. Look again at verse 29. It says, For it has been granted. That word means a gracious gift. So it is a gracious gift to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, we know that's a gift, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul's saying really clearly that the suffering that you will go through as someone who believes in Jesus, whatever that turmoil, whatever that trial, as you're trying to be faithful, that actually is a gift of God. It doesn't usually feel like one though, does it? For those of you coming this morning and, and this has been a week of of just real difficulty. I don't think many of us in a time of suffering say it feels like a gift, it feels like a burden. It feels difficult, we're, we're broken, we're, we don't know how we can make it through the day, whatever the, whatever the trial may be, whether it's just kind of pressure or just circumstances of life. So the question we have is, how, how is this actually a gift? How is this a good thing, God's grace in our life? So to answer that question, um, we're going to look at three um, apostles and their life. And we're going to see the way in which God brought about good things in their life through their suffering. So three ways in which suffering is, in fact, a gift. The first is this. Suffering reveals whether our convictions are genuine. And for that, we look to Peter. Now, if you know the story of Peter, he's a follower of Jesus. He was the, the brash one, the one who wanted to walk on water and, and that sort of thing. Uh, he's always the one who speaks first. And um, if you know the story of Peter, you know that just before Jesus went to the cross, he was, he was the one who was adamant, I am, I'm going to be with you to the end. Jesus, listen, I'm your guy. My conviction, mm, solid. Peter, uh, Jesus said, Peter, by tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me. Peter was like, no way. I'm ready to go with you to jail and to death. And what happened is persecution came. The potential, not even suffering, the potential of suffering came into Peter's life and He fled. Right? All of them ran away. Jesus left on his own. Peter, though, was kind of following him and watching what was happening. And as people recognized him, if you know the story, they said, hey, aren't you with Jesus? Of course, Peter said, no, no, that's, that's not me. Why? Because he was scared. His conviction that he thought was so strong, all of a sudden left him. And of course, three times, the rooster crows, he denies Jesus. And it seems like a story of failure, except, except that God is at work in that moment. We know God is at work in that moment because later on, Jesus comes back to him. After Jesus, you know, Peter denies Jesus, Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he's resurrected, he comes and he visits with Peter. He forgives him, he welcomes him back in. And he says, Peter, it's on you that I'm gonna build my church. And now look at this passage. This is in the book of Acts. Peter's the one who's preaching in Jerusalem, telling people about Jesus. The church is being built and they're getting persecuted. Suffering is coming. Look what happens here in Acts 5. And when they had called in the apostles, so Peter is there, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they, that's the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. What happened in between there? Like not long ago, Peter's even just the thought of being arrested, he's out. I don't know who that Jesus is. And now he is rejoicing in his suffering. What happened, what happened is that through that time of suffering, through the trial, through the test, Peter came to a better understanding of his conviction. And, and I'm not sure about you, but there have definitely been times in my life where I've, where I've failed, where I thought I had conviction and I, I, didn't, I didn't take the opportunity or whatever the case may be. And, and through that, I came, there's a, a grief in my heart. I was like, ah, oh, no, I missed that opportunity. And I, I wanna take it again. I really do believe or I really am sure about this. Give me another chance, Lord, to, to have a conversation with that person or whatever the case may be, to stand up for what's right. It's through the trials, through the suffering, through the difficulty that we often come to a place where we understand the depth of our conviction, where it's strengthened. We see this through scripture, that through trials and James tells us that we will develop character and steadfastness. And so there is a way in which suffering is the grace of God in our life. Where We come to really know what we believe. That's the first thing. Second thing, suffering gives us an opportunity to demonstrate the value of Jesus. Uh, here we look to Paul and Silas. This is uh, the story of how the church in Philippi began. They, as, as we saw, were talking about Jesus. They were beaten, they were thrown in jail, and the whole time their attitude was one of peacefulness. In fact, uh, when you look in the story, it says they're singing hymns at midnight in chains. So everyone around them is seeing these guys, seem a little strange. They're in jail, they're still happy apparently, and then God sends an earthquake. And the earthquake breaks apart the walls, opens the doors, and they have the opportunity to go free. But they don't, because they've gotten to know the jailer. And they know that the jailer, if they go free, that he is going to be killed, because it's his job to make sure that no one goes free. And in fact, when the jailer wakes up, if you know the story, he looks and he sees the door open and he thinks everyone's gone. He takes his sword, he's about to kill himself, and they say, wait, don't do it, we're still here. Do you remember the response of the jailer? It's up here on the screen, Acts 16. Then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I don't know what you have, but I want that. I want the ability in times of trial to be joyful. I want to be able to care for people. Even when you had the chance to go free, the willingness to suffer for other people. I want that. How do I get that? How do I be saved? He recognizes the thing that they have is of such high value and they have the opportunity to say, yeah, that's Jesus. That's because of what he's done in our life. That now we don't fear. We don't fear persecution. We don't fear hardship. In fact, what we're really intent on is trying to show love to people around us. We can do this too. We probably don't have jail cells. There may not be earthquakes, but I came across a story that that I think struck a chord with me. This is told, I uh, heard this a few years ago. Uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York. He tells a story about someone in his church uh, who was uh, a manager, big corporation, uh, team leader. And uh, there was a new team member added to his team. And uh, on their first project, uh, this was a, a woman, and she just, she just dropped the ball. So something went wrong. Uh, she, she made a mistake. It was a costly mistake. And um, he decided just to, to kind of um, take the blame for it. He recognized that she was very new to the corporation and that this would be damaging for her, but he had a lot of capital. He'd been there for years, and so he just said, you know what, that, that was on me. That was my bad to his superiors. Everything smoothed over, and it was fine. Well, when she heard about it, when she found out what had happened, she came to talk to him, in part just to thank him for this, but also she was very, very curious. And as she came to him, she said, you know, like, why, why did you do that? And he said, well, I, you know, I just saw that I was in a position to take the rap and it wouldn't hurt me very much, so I just I th- wanted to do that for you. And she said, you know, I've been in business a while. I've seen a lot of superiors take credit for things going well, but I've never seen someone take the blame when things go bad. Uh, like, honestly, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And after a bit more questioning, he finally said, well, look, I'm a Christian and this is how Jesus treated me, that, that he took the blame for the things that I did wrong. And so that's sort of my conviction in my life is that I wanna wanna live that way and treat people that way. And her response was, I wanna go to your church. Her response was, man, that's, I need to know how you have that. I need to understand how you can get to a place where you would treat people that way. I need to have that kind of hope. And see, it's in suffering, it's in our willingness to put ourselves out for others, And for the sake of the gospel, that we might have those opportunities to to treat people that way, to care for them in that way, and then to be able to say, if asked, hey, here's why. It's because I'm actually a changed person. I I actually love people because God loved me. And so, again, in those moments of suffering, there is a way in which it is God's gift, God's grace to us, that we can further magnify Jesus and tell people more about him. That was the second way. Third way, last way. Suffering, suffering brings us closer to Jesus. And for this, we're looking to uh, John, the Apostle John. Now, I don't know if you notice, but at certain times in the the ministry of Jesus, Jesus has a lot of followers, like thousands, especially when he's healing people and when he's feeding people, a lot of people are following him. But when things get difficult, uh, the numbers shrink considerably uh, to the point of the crucifixion when no one was following him. The 12 apostles, though, they were the ones who were the core. And what we see through the book of Acts, to the beginning of the New Testament church, is that they are continually persecuted and killed for their faith. Well, John is the last of the 12. Um, he has also endured um, jail time, beatings. Uh, history tells us that he was boiled alive for his faith, but it didn't kill him. And so they exiled him to the island of Patmos. And there, isolated, alone, and disfigured, we find that he is actually not far from Jesus, but he is very, very close to him. So much so that it's to him that Jesus comes. He appears and makes his final revelation. Look here. This is John writing, Revelation 1, 9 to 11. He says, "'I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation "'and the kingdom and the patient endurance "'that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos "'on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus.'" I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Can you imagine when he heard that voice behind him? When he heard Jesus who he knew before? I mean, notice he was in the spirit. He was worshiping God. There with everything that had happened, he felt so close to the Lord and then Jesus came and he spoke. And the truth of the matter is that it's very, very often through difficulties, through suffering that we will find we are closest to Christ because we, we see more clearly our need for him. Uh, we see this also through the Apostle Paul. There's a f- great text in, uh, in Corinthians where Paul is talking about the challenges he has, the trials that he has, so much so that he pleads with the Lord to take them from him, these difficulties, this, this oppression. And here's the response he gets. This is 2 Corinthians 12. But he, that is God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships and persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak then I am strong. I think that's I mean that's been my experience. If you think back on those times when you've really, you've really been before the Lord, just desperate for help, I mean, those are the times when, when we see clearly that our strength is very, very limited. And it's sometimes hard to see that apart from the difficult times in life. But we're reminded here that it's in our suffering that we grow close to the Lord, that we recognize his genuine love and sustaining power and in that sense then, again, the suffering that God allows into our life, brings into our life is a gracious gift because we get to know him more. And, and that, if that's our conviction, if our conviction is that, in fact, the best life, the best way forward, the greatest hope in our life is Jesus Christ, then we also should have such a great desire to go closer to him. And through suffering, we have that opportunity. And this is a, a picture a painted picture of an invested life, the life of a citizen, one where where we have conviction, which leads us to action, leads us to wrestle and, and stand firm in certain things and strive for the gospel, and then where we suffer for his sake because we, we truly believe that in Christ we have the greatest hope for our lives. Now this is not the easiest life. There are a lot of other ways to live that are much easier. Uh, but this is a greater life. See, easy is not always better. We want to find out what's true and what's, what's enduring, what will carry us through. And here we find in the gospel all of those things. And, and so, yes, it's more difficult. But as we wrestle, as we genuinely wrestle with how we stand firm as believers in Christ, how we strive to tell people about the gospel how we know how much influence from our culture to give into our, our family, how to, we're praying all the time, Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, how is it that I can show the hope of the gospel to others? As we're wrestling, as we're enduring trial and all these things, we will find that we are living a worthy life. It's a life that explodes with the grace of God, explodes with the knowledge of God. And in that, there is greater joy and purpose. And God's word to us this morning is, is that's the way forward. That's my, my hope for you is that as you know me more in all these things that you will in fact experience a life of worth and a life of joy. Let's pray. Lord God, I am thankful. I am thankful, Lord, that that you are always at work in our lives. I'm thankful, Lord, for for Paul again writing uh, to those brothers and sisters in Christ long ago and communicating to them the truths of, of the life of citizenship in the gospel, Lord, it's, it's one of difficulty and challenge and suffering. And yet through all of that, you tell us again and again that you are at work. And God, that in fact, it's, it's your grace in our lives that you draw us closer to yourself through the difficulties. I pray, Lord, I pray especially for those uh, this morning who are just right now, it is a very difficult time. And it's even maybe hard to hear that you are somehow at work. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to us. I pray, Lord, that you would bring hope, and healing, and fullness of your spirit, and, and Lord, I pray for, for all of us here. God, may we look for those opportunities to indeed stand firm, and Lord, give us the wisdom to know how to do that in such a gracious way, that people will hear about the love of God before they hear anything else, and Lord, in that, that people will come to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.